Tonight, an 80s all over Patreon exclusive interview with the star of Dressed to Kill, Blowout, and Robocop, Nancy Allen. And now, your hosts, Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg. I'm excited that this is the first one because I, I think this uh, you're the perfect person to talk to because so much of the, the work that I, I really want to dig into is the exact era we'll be talking about. So I, th- I think it's great. Oh, well, good, good. I'm glad it all worked out. Um, well, first, I want to thank you for your work with WeSpark. Uh, my sister is a breast cancer survivor this year, and the work you do you do with that organization is incredibly valuable. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that she's doing well. It's a very traumatic thing to go through. Well, in a way, it's this is a perfect place to start the conversation. WeSpark was founded uh, by Wendy Jo Sperber, who I always think of as such a big, vibrant, hilarious presence in so many of the films that we're going to get to talk about on the podcast. And when I think of comedy in the early 80s, she was a big part of that. She was one of those faces that was that popped up in so many things I loved. And you guys worked together right at the beginning of the Zemeckis Gale career. And I'm fascinated by them as writers and by Robert as a director. Um, can you talk a bit about your impression of them as writers, both on I Want to Hold Your Hand in 1941, and then about Zemeckis as a director on his feature debut? Sure. Um, I guess it was, I met Bob, the Bob Z, I'll call him Bob Z, uh, for the audition, actually, uh, of I Want to Hold Your Hand. I read the script, loved it, and couldn't wait to go in there. Sally Dennison was casting, and I was walking down the halls of this little building, this little offshoot of Universal Studios, and this geeky kind of skinny guy with glasses looked like a you know a gopher, you know, an office boy. And he said, "Hey, you're Nancy Allen. I just love you and Carrie." And I said, "Thank you, thank you so much." And uh, walked away and went in, signed in for the audition, and. Um, sat there for a little bit and then Sally called me into the office and that geeky guy, that was Bob Zemeckis. And I looked at him and I said, you're the director. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen now? But, uh, but uh, seriously, what became very clear very quickly was that this was a guy who knew what he wanted, who was a natural I I like to pride myself in saying that I can, I can really, I really have a sense of directors and good directors because I feel immediately safe with him. And I felt that way with Bob. So we read a few things and, uh, and uh, yeah. And then I was able to uh, close the deal and go to work on that film. Um, First day of rehearsal, we had the cast. I met Wendy. We were actually fast friends, almost immediately we connected to one another and uh bob looked at me and said well should we just all read the script is that what you guys did with carrie and i said yeah something like that <laughs> so uh you know that's where it started and uh you know it almost seemed like well a few people looked around saying does this guy know what he's doing but boy did he know what he was doing i mean on the set it moved he knew what shots he wanted he knew exactly what he wanted out of the actors and was a very um uh, he had a very clear vision, and Bob Gale was a, a constant presence uh, because he was uh, one of the producers. It was Tamara Sayev and Alex Rose, but Bob Gale was really the grounding force for Bob Z, and um, loved those guys, still love those guys, loved working with him. It was one of the most fun experiences of my career, and we just had a blast on that movie. 
Well, I know I know Scott is just Hi, as big Scott. a fan of Hi, Mister <laughs> Weinberg. Um, you know, like me, you're a huge 1941 fan, and that's a movie that I, had kind of a legendary script. It was one of those things that everybody was talking about. And of course, Spielberg couldn't have been any hotter at that moment. Um, did you feel any? Un- was there any unusual pressure on you guys as a cast on that film, or were you shielded from all that and just working on the movie, whatever the movie was? Oh, now we're getting into a hornet's nest. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. Um, I think I might have been the last person cast in the movie. Uh, everybody had read it. it. In fact, it was called The Night the Japs Attacked originally. And then the studio said, oh, no, we won't be calling it that. Uh, <laughs> and then it became 1941. And everybody kept saying, oh, this is a perfect part for you in here. Perfect part. And they couldn't they couldn't cast the role. And um, I kept saying, well, Stephen knows me. He knows my work. He knows me personally. If he really thought I was right for it. But the, at the same time, I was kind of heartbroken because it seemed like, so many people I knew were in the film and doing the film. And uh, so finally, when Stephen couldn't find anyone and they kept, I think the Bobs, kept pressuring him and Sally Dennison, he called me in. They were actually shooting the miniatures and we were sitting in his, his trailer and uh, we're just sitting there. He says, you know, I'm not going to read you. You're perfect for this. I don't know what I was thinking. I guess, you know, I just knew you and I wasn't even thinking of you as an actress. And um, so I was thrilled absolutely thrilled and uh then you know the first i'll just say the first day i don't even know if i should tell this story but i'm going to tell it and you guys can decide if you're going to use it or not (laughs) but um might as well tell at this point it's kind of fun otherwise it's not fun but um it was night shooting we were shooting out in uh what was supposed to be barso and it was uh, out in indian dunes and uh, i was just reminded actually by uh, Chris, I can't think of his last name, who was the second assistant AD who gave me directions. And apparently I didn't make it there. I was somewhere out in Malibu and that was the last they let me drive to location <laughs> on the rest of the movie. But, um, I didn't even know where I was. Uh, but anyway, I got there and one of the actors gr- grabbed me and, you know, these were the days when Coke was very much part of the scene out here is like, if you have any Coke, do not give it to Belushi. He asked me for just a little bit and he did my entire <laughs> stash. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. You know, here we are for night shooting. And, um, that actually that, uh, day, that's when Tim and I are in the car and he's saying, you know, the scene where I'm looking out and there's a plane and he says, oh my God, it's just a plane. I said, I don't care. I don't care. Anyway, you might recall the scene where John, comes in after us and he gets up on the plane and he falls off and jumps back on and falls back off. Well, that was never supposed to happen. (laughs) He was just supposed to get up there. And when Warno says, show me your guns, he was just supposed to shoot it, you know, shoot the guns and then take off. So they, they turned it into a stunt as they dragged him off to the hospital with a broken rib. But, um, there was a, you know, there was an, there was an interesting energy on the set. Everybody was happy, 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 and excited to be there. And Steven Spielberg, big production, huge cast, and terrific script. The script was original script was very funny, and it had an edge to it. You know, it's a little bit darker than I think the movie turned out. But um, I will tell you the first page, the very first page of the script, when you open the front cover, it said, it was a quote from Stephen. It said, I will not make this movie if it cost one penny over $11 million. (laughs) Well, (laughs) 
cost 40 and it, you know at that point it was unheard of but it, at some point you could feel as we're shooting could sort of feel things changing and things growing and new people being cast and new parts being written and inserts of pages of pink pages blue pages yellow pages orange pages at one point everybody kind of just threw their script away and said well let's see what happens today you know uh and um so the what was 11 week shoot i think ended up being i think i started in november and finished in april or may or something like that so it was a long long shoot and uh, at times very problematic uh production uh i think from my perspective one of the real big problems was there really wasn't a strong producer nobody would say no steven Let's shoot the script. No, we're shooting what we have scheduled. Don't make something up today. But uh, we had fun. A lot, a lot of people got hurt. I, Tim and I got almost incinerated in the plane uh, on the soundstage. So there was a lot, just a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff going on. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, so much of what's great about that era of film, I think, comes from all the collaborations and the collisions between all the filmmakers who were sort of friendly and in that social group. So you had like Brian De Palma and Spielberg and Milius and Scorsese all sort of looking at each other's work and judging it and giving notes and things. Can you just talk about Los Angeles in general at that time and what it was like for you as an actor working with that group of people? You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, I didn't realize that I was just right in the middle of the every, every important piece of filmmaking that was going on. I mean, it was, that was a really special time. And, uh, you know, so many people, everybody just hanging out, everybody was young and going to dinner and talking about movies and movies they liked and things they were working on and sharing ideas. And it was, you know, it was dream come true. I mean, I'm a, just a crazy movie fan from the time I was a little girl. So there you are in the middle of all this, although it just didn't seem as it didn't seem as important as it does now. Looking back, uh, the, they had a, they were all very supportive at the same time, very competitive. And I think that that part of that, each one trying to outdo the other, but not in that, not in a negative way, but you know, looking at the work and it, it, it spurred the other ones on to just do more and to do better and to try things. And they did go to each other's cuts of films, and we had, you know, it was just. It, Everybody was young. It was fun. You know, we were just all having a great time. I personally uh, just wanted to tell you uh, how how flattered I was back in 1981 when uh, I was a young kid and I saw Blowout and I noticed how beautiful Philadelphia looked in the <laughs> movie. Uh, that's where I'm from. That's where I'm at right now. And I was wondering if you could just uh, share any any stories or uh, anecdotes or memories of, of shooting uh, anything about the production uh, in Philadelphia, because uh, it is a, a touchstone Philadelphia film. Well, I love Philadelphia. We had a great time shooting there. It's a, obviously it's an amazing location. So much history there and so many great places and food, the food. I love the food in Philadelphia. Um, but uh, we were set up, the production was set up over, um, God, what was that area called? Over by the water. I don't know what that. Oh, Penn, uh, Penn's Landing. Penn, Penn's Landing. Penn's yep. Landing. Yep. So we were set up there. Sets were built there. And one of the most amazing things when we started that was with the, all the production being set up there, everyone came into town. All the actors were here. And we were able to rehearse 
the movie like a play. Uh, Brian and his producer and, you know, whoever, I guess, different heads of departments would be sitting stationary in a room and scene by scene, we'd come in and we'd perform, you know, perform the, the movie. So he was able to see it from beginning to end and see what works and what needed work and all of that. So that is my first recollection is what a, what a, a gift that was to be able to rehearse the film in that way. Um, we had a great crew and uh, some from LA, some from New York. We had uh, the wonderful Teamsters in Philadelphia who took. Yeah. Us. Let me tell you, my personal Teamster. When I was upset one day, he offered to break the legs. <laughs> Sorry, on the film that upset me. I said, "Well, I don't think we have to go there yet, Greg." <laughs> so I knew I was in good hands. It was um, that particular winter was freezing cold, mm -hmm. and um, a number of people were getting sick, but. We had a great time. I went out to watch when they were shooting at Wissahickon Creek, which was spectacular. I mean, Vilmos Zygmunt's lighting. I yeah. mean, just standing there, it looked like you were just standing in the middle of a painting. It was so beautiful. Um, the Mummers Parade, which was fabulous. They shot that yes. uh, there. And, um, you know, everything you know, Everything we did, the station, the train station, the, the 30th, 30th Street mm -hmm. station, and then that other smaller station where we shot – the scene where John, where I'm running away and he's, mm -hmm. if I forget what station that is, but, and the wonderful market. I mean, it's just, I think about it location after location. It just was visually so interesting and fun to work in that environment because there's still a lot of energy that you pick up when you're shooting in practical locations. So we had a great time. Uh, Philly, uh, Philadelphia movie buffs are very proud of the films that were shot here. We're very protective of uh, your well, Rockies you and your, your mannequins. <laughs> so, yeah, when you have a great thriller and it happens to take place in Philly, it's a, it's a special movie here. It really is because it makes the city look great. Like you said, Mr. Uh, Zygmunt's uh, uh, cinematography is gorgeous. And uh, it's just a fun movie to revisit. Uh, but it really holds up, Blowout. It's, it does not feel overly dated. It still feels very uh, contemporary as far as the filmmaking goes. I, I think it's, I in, in my personal opinion, I think it's the best work Travolta ever did on film. And I think a big part of that is the, the way you two play off of each other in the movie. There's this wonderful sadness to it. And it really brings out strength in both of the characters. It's so different than your work in Carrie. Can you talk about him as an acting partner and the opportunity to work in such different roles with each other? Well, John is a close to, as, as close as you can get to a perfect acting partner because he's a wonderful collaborator. He's creative. He's improvisational. Uh, he's supportive. He's just a really, he's a great partner. Um, I first met him at the screen test for Carrie. I had actually rehearsed with Michael Talbot, who was also uh, testing for that role. And um, so I tested first with Michael and then John walked in the room and just the way he presented, the way he walked in the room, I thought, oh, He's getting the part. I don't know who rehearsed with him, but he's definitely getting the part. <laughs> and I will say, without saying anything besides, hi, how are you? We sat down and something for me, I, it was magic. Right away, we connected to one another. Right away, there was chemistry between us. And um, it felt so different doing the scenes with him for the test that I had rehearsed with the other actor. It was just, oh, this is it. This is this works, and um, and of course that's what happened. And 
uh, we ended up doing it together and uh, we had we had a great time working together. He started when we started, he had just Cotter was new and it really hadn't um, exploded yet. But by the end of the film, it had exploded. And when we were shooting out uh, the car crash scene or the flip, the car flip scene, they had to put up barricades uh, to keep people back. But John was just a dream to work with. And he, I remember him saying to me, it was so sweet. We came out of dailies one night and he looked at me and said, you know what? People are going to be very surprised when they see you because they're going to look at you and think, oh, she's a pretty girl. But when they see your work, then they're going to know how great you are, too. And I just it meant it meant the world to me because I thought so highly of him. So um, we had a great time on that. And actually, when they were casting Saturday Night Fever, he recommended me and I went in and read for that. And I was so disappointed that I didn't get it because I wanted to dance. I started out with a dancer and worked with John again. We would have had so much fun together. And it was, um, you know, a few years later, as you know, uh, more than a few years, uh, that um, Blowout came along. John was not on the list of actors for that particular, nor was I. I wasn't going to do it. And he simply asked, called Brian and said, what are you working on? And Brian sent him the script. And I said, oh, Brian, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he likes it. <laughs> he said, oh, no, he's going to see that it's really not for him. And I said, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think actors are going to, any actor is going to really like this role. And, of course, that is exactly what happened. And um, I was actually out of the country. And Brian called me and he said, well, John wants to do the movie. And I said, well, that's okay. That's exciting. It's going to be interesting. And uh, he said, he said, I asked him. Who do you see as your leading lady? And he said, I sure would love to work with Nancy again. So that's how that came to be. And um, I was a little bit, not reluctant, but concerned that maybe he had changed because he'd had Saturday Night Fever and Grease and so many things had been happening for him. But he showed up for the first rehearsal. Uh, he walked in, we hugged. We sat down, we started to read through the material, and he said, hey, let's order a pizza. And it was like, okay, we're back. This is it. It's us. And uh, Nice. Yeah, it was nice. And we had to, we actually we had to do some improvisation because the material wasn't really tailored to us. It was really written for, um, you know, older actors, maybe a little more of the characters, more cerebral. Scott, I'm sure you've read gazillions of things about this already. But uh, so through working together and uh, with Brian, he ended up rewriting some of the character stuff for uh, John and I. Why don't we jump back uh, just one and, and talk just a little. It's hard. Is it hard to talk about Blowout without at least covering Dress to Kill a little bit? No. Okay, no. because uh, it, which one uh, – they both hold up remarkably well. That's the coolest part about a lot of Mr. De Palma's movies is that they're they might have um, cosmetic things that are dated, costumes or uh, hairstyles or whatnot. But a lot of his thrillers really hold up as um, as ever so modern. Yeah, his evergreen. Uh, have you have you watched either of those two classics recently? Um, you know, I saw Blowout. Last year, I was invited to the Roger Ebert's, it used to be called the Overlook Film Festival, and now it's mm -hmm. called Ebert Fest, and they showed the film, and, and Leonard Malt was there and interviewed me, and I had not seen the film, and to see it on a big screen with a packed house, that was really good. I actually oh. 
really the most is- heartbreaking I- ending ever. I know. I know. I just, it was a really tough one for me. Uh, and uh, there was some discussion, not about the ending, but getting up to the ending and, and all of that. But uh, it, it does work. It certainly does work. As, as an actor, doesn't it make you feel great when you see, like, you know that the films are loved, but there's a difference between knowing that Blowout and, and uh, Dress to Kill are admired and then actually seeing in, in 2016 a packed house for the Oh, film. my God. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So you think, oh, my God, are they going to get it? Are they going to like it? And, you know, what's going to happen? But particularly with that film, that film has grown in uh, – uh, in admirers over the years. I mean, first it was really the French that took it on because it didn't do very well here when it opened at all. Mm. And uh, it was mixed, mixed criticism. People either loved it or hated it. And, um, and uh, they didn't really perform that well at the box office. So it's always heartbreaking because when you know you've made a good movie, it wasn't a, a bad one. Certainly I've made a few of those, but you knew you make it a good, great movie, but what happened, you know, what happened is, is the problem. And so now the fact that I can't tell you how many people still write to me, people want to interview me. It's almost like it, it has, because it is so good, it has a life of its own. And, um, you know, I, uh, I couldn't be happier because it really probably might be my favorite film. That That's blow, that one, uh, Blowout is the one yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, talk. Can you talk just a bit about working with Michael Caine in Dress to Kill? What was he like? Oh my God, an absolute dream. I believe it's it. I believe Caine. it. It's Michael right. Caine. You know, he walks in the door and it's oh my God, it's Michael Caine. I was very starstruck when I met him and the first time, and uh, we uh, he showed up for rehearsal and we had to rehearse the scene where in, you know, in the office where I say a lot of interesting things to him. Uh-huh. And, uh, he said to me, I, he probably could tell I was nervous. And he said to me, isn't it funny how we are as actors? We, we don't know anyone at all. And then we meet them and we say things to them that we wouldn't even say to somebody else. And he just, he just disarmed me, you know, and made me laugh. And, and all of a sudden it was, it was great. And I felt very comfortable, you know, on the set. Well, he's hysterically funny. That's what you need to know about him. He's very, very funny. And, um, you know, uh, shooting with him, it's very supportive. The scene where I am first come to the office and I'm walking around before I take the coat off and I'm telling him the story, telling the dream. I'm talking about the dream. Mm-hmm. It's a very tight and small set. And Brian said to him, look, Michael, you're really just saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, and not really much of anything. Why don't you go relax? Let us get this shot with Nancy. And uh, we'll bring you back. And he said, no, no, I'll stay here because she'll just feel, she'll feel, she'll feel me in the room. She'll know I'm here. It'll make a difference. Mm-hmm. So very generous actor. And, um, you know, I, I loved him. I really loved him. It was really funny when he got the dress and the thing and the wig and the makeup. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan sent me to his dressing room. He says, you better go look at him and you better go talk to him because I don't want anybody laughing when he walks on the set. And I thought, oh my God, this is going to be really bad. And I walked in and he was all dressed up in lipstick with a big cigar. <laughs> and oh. he's so funny and came on the set and said to the crew who they were very tense. He said, well, I always know if I worked long enough and hard enough, I'd get to play me mum. And that was it. Everybody laughed. And so a professional, um, supportive, charming, just 
you know, I love English actors because they're very professional. There's no stuff around them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Another of one of your co-stars uh, in a film you made in that era is Paul Lamatt, who fascinates me because I, I love his work and there's so little of it. But he crushes me like an American Graffiti or Melvin and Howard. So you guys made Strange Invaders. And at that point, genre pastiche seemed like it was kind of new, doing the 50s throwback. But so many of those guys, legitimately, that was their era of being film nerds and growing up. And so they kind of led us as young film fans to 50s horror through their work. Um, Can you talk about the experience on Strange Invaders? I can. Um, (laughs) I'll say I read the script and loved it. And thought it was clever and funny and had all the right pieces and parts to it. And I was very excited to uh, be making the film. Um, I think, if I'm speaking candidly here, I think that Bill Condon should have directed it. Because I think he was a natural director and I think it was everything was in the script. And um, it just, the struggle for me was with the director. There are uh, several of his scripts that are like that. Bill was such a good writer up front. Oh my God, such a good writer. In fact, yeah. I loved working with Paul. He's a very nice guy, very gentle. He's got a very gentle spirit about him, not not complicated at all. Um, and, uh, you know, we had we ended up having a good time. Michael Lerner was in the film, Louise Fletcher, who I adore, absolutely adore, loved working with her. And um, we had fun. You know, there was a, an element of fun with that material because it is kind of kooky fiona lewis you know showing up as the avon lady Mm -hmm. it's kind of you know kind of campy and fun and i loved you know wardrobe was great and it looked had a really cool look to it but um as a sidebar i'll tell you a funny story about um when the film was done uh i knew because i knew pauline kale and had met her at many screenings and i knew that she had helped many times getting films released and we didn't know what was going to happen with the film. And I said to Bill, I said, Bill, why don't I call Pauline and see if she'll look at the movie and, uh, you know, give her blessing to it, so to speak. So we basically hijacked the film from the studio and drove up to, uh, wherever she was, some up in the Berkshires or wherever the heck she was and screened the movie for her. And I don't think she liked it. Because she said to me, well, if I were you, I wouldn't do anything to promote this film. Oh, God. This was not what I was hoping for. And she said, my goodness, you look so tall in this movie. And I thought, okay, she she either doesn't like my work or whatever it is. But, uh, you know, I think the film's got some good stuff in it. I still think it would have been a better movie if Bill had directed it. That's my opinion. Uh, What I love is that a film can uh, come out and go because strange invaders came and went pretty quickly, yes. but it quickly became kind of a, I wouldn't necessarily say a full bore cult film, but if you want to talk to sci-fi fans of the eighties, strange invaders is a well-regarded movie. Like movie fans really dig it. So, I mean, does that, uh, d- is that any kind of like a, a consolation prize after a movie doesn't do so well <laughs> when you find out 10 or 12 years later, Hey, people really do like this movie. It's just not a blockbuster hit movie. Of course, yeah, because, you know, just because a movie doesn't perform at the box office doesn't mean it's not a good movie, you know, there there is something to that. I mean, certainly you have that experience with with Blowout. If something has value to it, uh, people who love film will find it. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Pauline Kael, because actually Bill Condon has told me that same story, so it's amazing to hear <laughs> the other side of it and hear it here. <laughs> but I, 
Kale was really the reason. Did that he tell you I, we were driving in a snowstorm and that the car literally turned around backwards? <laughs> oh <my laughs> I said, God. do you think this is a sign? <laughs> well, I, I know that for, for somebody like me, I grew up. Kale was the first critic that gave me permission to like things that other people didn't. Yeah. And I and I think part of it was Brian's work um, because I, I was really taken with Dress to Kill when I saw it and then would read critical responses to it and be mystified by them. And Kale was stood resolutely against that. She had her own voice, and her own interests. And I think that led me to realize that you don't have to like what everyone else likes. You're allowed to like what you like and defend that based on what you get from it. Um, and she was super important in supporting those films. Oh, yeah. No, she's amazing. And uh Yes, and I think, you know, she's also would go in depth into her, what the film meant to her and what she saw in it and, and really dissect it, as you know. And and um, it was a way, reading her work was like being schooled in, you know, her version of schooling you in, in uh, cinema. It is positively criminal that you did not work with John Carpenter in the 80s, because that feels like that I, should have happened. I agree. <laughs> I know. And I know a Philadelphia experiment is the closest we got because there was a point where I think he was talking about that material or playing with it in some way. One of the things I love about 80s genre films in general is they're the inverse of today, where now you have all the money in the world, so you can almost do anything indifferently. But back right. then, everything you had to really push the edges of the budget to make it work. And you can see it in movies like Philadelphia Experiment, where there is such imagination to try and just make those things live on screen. Yes, I think, in fact... If I'm not mistaken, he was either executive producer or some. He had some credit on it. Mm -hmm. I guess it was mm -hmm. he was a producer. It. But Stuart Raffle, I thought Stuart did a great job, and um, you know it was it was a you know, it was a complicated shoot, particularly shooting in in Utah. It was very cold in there, in the salt flats and all that. But I uh, love time travel. It's a I really gets my curiosity and my imagination. And I read that and I thought, I like this movie. I want to make this movie. Uh, and it, I, I, I think it's a good film. I really do. Oh yeah. The field, we, uh, we've revisited a lot of movies for the podcast and I think uh, Drew and uh, we can speak for each other. I think this Philadelphia experiment is a lot more entertaining than I remember. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, when I saw it, when I was, I think 11 or 12, I was I, I was looking for you know back then I wanted Star Wars sci-fi I didn't want any any kind of halfway grown up sci-fi but uh, I revisit it as an adult and the Philadelphia Experiment holds up it's a fun movie it is a fun movie and I think that considering there was very little budget they did a great job with the special effects mm -hmm. and I think about you know when Bobby DeChico when we're in the they're in the cafe, the uh, coffee shop and his hand starts to glow and all of that all of those kind of effects I think worked quite well. Um, and I also think that Stewart visually got some bang for the buck out of the, some of the driving scenes and the aerial scenes. And he really, yeah. he really did make, uh, you know, lemonade out of lemons, so to speak, with a low budget, so to speak. Not, uh, not that the script wasn't good because the script worked. You, you talk about how, um, there's, we're rewatching things for the podcast and there are a number of films that I've seen that I'm going back and watching again, but I'm realizing doing this, there are things that I miss, no matter how rabid a film fan I was at the time. I have never heard of not for publication until we started doing research <laughs> for the interview. And that's amazing because it's Paul Bartel and it's you and it's David Naughton. So it's crazy, like the, the things that you can miss, even if you're interested in all the elements of it. Uh, well, and it was 
kind of not for release. I think that's why you missed almost missed it. But I uh, I was a huge fan of eating Raoul. Oh and, man! Uh, all I got was this call. I got remember I will never forget it. I was I think I was living at the Chateau Marmont. I don't remember what I was shooting then or why I was there, but that's where I was. And they said, you know, Paul Bartel wants to meet you across the street for dinner or lunch or whatever it was. And I went, oh my God, Paul Bartel, I don't care what he's doing. I really want to work with him. And we met and just got along well. And he said, tell me how much you love my work. And he said that now that because of eating Raul, he says, I could do anything I want to do. And I have, this was like his passion piece. <laughs> he loved his, he loved the music. He loved all the craziness of the humor. And, uh, and I signed on and I actually had known I'd worked with David Naughton, uh, in the Dr. Pepper commercials and had, uh, we had met him many years before that. So we were excited to be working together. Larry Luckinville, as you know, was in it. Who was really, really funny and good and um at first i was a little bit thrown because he didn't say anything to me so i thought he doesn't like me what's going on and i i uh, finally had the courage to go over to him and say paul are, I, I, are you okay with what i'm doing or oh i love everything you're doing i said well i had no idea because you didn't say anything to me so he said well i only really say something if it's not working and i thought okay now i know what's going on so we had a lot of fun. Uh, we shot the film in Dallas. I think we shot maybe maybe something in New York, but mostly the film was shot in Dallas. And um, he was just every day was delighted. That's all I could say. I'd look over and he was just laughing and <laughs> he loved everything he was watching. It's like his own personal show. So he yeah. was just darling to work with. I wish more people thought about things like that when they criticized a movie. Because uh, I am familiar with Paul Bartel's work, and I have not seen Not for Publication, but I wish more film fans would watch a movie and, and realize that the people had fun and really did try. And it's not an adversarial position between questionable film and viewer. You should be on the side of the film. You, <laughs> that totally. You know? I will tell you a funny story. I, uh, you know, we had that scene where Bird and Lamb, and there's a scene where we sneak in and we do the song and dance, and we got to the day that we were going to shoot it and he said well let's lay down the track the, the vocal first and I said well I'm not singing <laughs> aren't, aren't you dubbing this and he said oh, no and I said well, I can't uh, this is not I, I just I don't do it and and I, so I was completely uh, distressed about it and finally I said to him I said okay I said well I'll do it but I can't no one can be in here <laughs> while I'm singing. So David Naughton said, bam, ladies and gentlemen, Nancy Allen opens in Vegas and nobody can come. But uh, essentially, we recorded the track. And of course, I didn't understand that it wasn't supposed to be flawless. It was supposed to be kind of goofy. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, and then we shot the, the, uh, the scene. And that was, it ended up being so much fun. David and I now, whenever we run into each other, we start singing it to one another. So it's, <laughs> it's lived on. <laughs> One of the most iconic and beloved films of the 1980s. Oh, yeah. And you have a key, uh, important, wonderful role in it. Just, I'll start out and Drew can follow up. How, start out with how you first came across the screenplay for RoboCop. Oh, um, let's see. I was, I was home. I was at home and I got a call from my agent and said, you know, there's a script uh, being messengered to you right now. 
if you can take a look at it, they, you know, they want to meet you. It's Paul Verhoeven. I thought, oh my God, Paul Verhoeven, Soldier of Orange. And that was really his only film that I was aware of at that point. And I thought, oh my God, this is a great director. The script arrives. I look at it, it says Robocop. So I called my agent. I said, are they gonna, they're changing this title, right? This is a terrible <laughs> title. No one's going to see this. And I said, he said, well, just read it. And I said, okay. So I, I thought, well, I'll read a little bit now. Because somehow the title threw me. And I thought this is going to be crap, you know. So I turned the first page and the second page and the third page. And I couldn't put it down. I'd never read anything like it. I mean, it was as close to a perfect script as you can get. It was funny. It was smart. It was, you know, it just... It just had every element. It, it it got you excited. It upset you. I mean, it really worked on every level. And there was this female, this heroic female character that was that nothing that I had done previously would inform that I would be right for this part or even thought of for a role like that because it was very different in those days. They really kind of really only wanted you to do what you were known for it and people didn't cross over very much. So um, I was thrilled. My father was a cop and I thought, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's go. Let's do this thing. I called, I said, I think this is incredible. I'd love to meet him. So that was how I first got in touch with the, the whole thing. Well, it's, it, it strikes me that Lewis should be a larger feminist icon because as much as I love Ripley and aliens, there is still something about the writing in Ripley that d- ties directly back into the maternal instinct, and it's a very strong thematic drive in that film. What's great about Lewis is that there is nothing. They don't make her a love interest. They don't try to suggest that. Lewis is simply his partner, and she's awesome. And right. it, it is so unusual to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny that your reaction to the title was that. I worked at a theater the summer that came out as a manager, and I remember when we put the poster up, we started making fun of it. And the, the tagline was half man, half machine, all cop. And we were like, oh, no. And, <laughs> and then the night before it came out, we showed it for the employees. And I remember sitting there jaw on the floor thinking, <laughs> what have they smuggled into this movie? And do they not realize what they're releasing? This is insanity. And it was it was such an, a, a totally different film than what I think anybody was doing in 80s action. How, how is Verhoeven just in general as a collaborator? Because he's his final result, there's such great controlled lunacy to it. Yeah, I call, always refer to him as a mad scientist. I mean, that's, he's just, first of all, his energy is unstoppable. He is, you know, he'll walk on the set with a very quick pace. Why are we not shooting? I mean, that's how the day begins. Why are we not shooting? And uh, just to go back to Lewis for a second, in because a lot of that is Verhoeven. In the script, when, when Lewis is introduced, it says she takes off her helmet and her hair cascades down. Well, the first thing he said to me is, would you cut your hair? I said, of course. I said, that nice. seems nice to me. Cut it again, cut it again. So it was like a million haircuts that I had to go through. But um, he is, he knows what he wants. Um, the energy, like I said, the energy is crazy. We worked with banks of fluorescence. So, and uh, everything was wide open. You could shoot, you could, there wasn't any boundary to what you could do or where you could go. So it was a very free moving, constantly, you can feel that energy when you watch the film. It doesn't stop, it keeps moving. And, uh, and that was Paul. And he had never shot in the States before. So he wasn't used to people. If there was a sound problem being wired, 
So all of a sudden, we're shooting something, and the sound comes up and says, oh, you know, we have to wire the actors. <laughs> and he about, you know, we were already shooting. He about lost his mind. He said, you know, you're conspiring. You're conspiring to ruin my movie, <laughs> you know. And he would just sit there, just sit there, like, how long is this going to take? Because I think that he had such a strong vision and passion for this film that it's almost like he couldn't contain himself. It had to, we had to keep moving. We had to keep shooting. And, um, he gave interesting notes. Uh, for instance, he'd come on the set and if there were five, uh, actors in the scene, he'd act the whole thing out. And then he'd say, but don't copy me. I can't act. <laughs> of course not. But he was kind of giving you a little bit of the energy of what he wanted. And, and then there'd be those wonderful, wonderful moments where he'd come up and he'd just say something very simple to you. It would just, you just do the simplest adjustment to what you were doing or how you delivered a line. And it made all the difference in the world. Uh, for instance, I'll give you an example. There was one uh, with uh, Peter when we're shooting the third act face and he takes the mask off, the, the helmet off. And he's sitting there in that, scene we talk about, he talks about his family and he says, I can feel them, but I can't remember them. Well, he delivered that almost, I can, you know, like a, in a big way. And Paul made a simple suggestion. He said, no, dude, it's almost yourself. And if you think about it, when you see that scene, it almost makes me cry every time I see it because you really do, you feel, you feel his pain, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all sort of a perfect moment. And then of course his crazy, insane sense of humor, which, um, uh, which a lot of, a lot of the humor in the script, a lot is from Ed Newmeyer. So I have to credit Newmeyer and uh, Michael Miner a lot. And he would explain some of the humor. Paul didn't get some of it, but, um, you know, it's that dark devilish, uh, creature that's inside of him but uh oh, yeah. there was never a moment where i doubted anything that he was doing and i think everybody every actor would tell you they would have walked off the cliff for him because that's you can feel like you know you're in the presence of someone who's who's got a vision and and is going to execute it brilliantly uh, you, you said that you were a bit nervous to do singing in the uh, in your one of your earlier projects i'm i'm wondering you'd never done anything quite that action-y before. So when you when you come into RoboCop, is that your one, like, nervous, to, like, am I going to be okay when I hold a gun and kick someone's ass? Is that going to be believable? Because you are a believable <laughs> cop in that movie. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. I, you know, I, you know, a little bit. I'd never held a gun, so I did practice. Uh, Randy Moore, who was the munitions expert on the film, worked with me and took me out shooting. And I think it was on the next film, or maybe it was on this film that I went out to the police academy. But, um, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't really that nervous. I felt very connected to that character. And maybe it's because my father was a cop and maybe I knew or had some insight into it. And I really made it more about rather thinking about, well, how am I moving? What am I doing? How am I walking or talking? Uh, but I did make it more about the partnership. Although I will say I did do, had some private little acting tricks that I used on that for myself to make me feel a little less, uh, shall, we, shall we say, feminine. Mm. Um, the undergarments that I chose to wear, would I'd never, <laughs> I'd never you know, wear them in my life, but it, it kind of worked for me on that. Listen to different kinds of music uh, when I was off set. And it just, I, I wasn't really... I wasn't intimidated by her for some reason. What, what did you think when you saw the final product, when you saw RoboCop all completed? 
did was it just did it blow your mind or were you like oh we knew it we knew we had this well i'll say the first before i'll just say start by saying the first footage i ever saw the first the rushes that i saw were the scene in the emergency room where they're reviving trying attempting to revive peter's character and i remember walking in going i mean that visual was absolutely stunning and a lot of it's all in that one first shot as you might recall so that was the introduction to it the first time i saw robocop was at the premiere screening it was at the academy i got there late i think it was in the second or third row and the movie started and it was it took off and it was so gripping right away and so exciting and touched every emotion in me. And at the end of it, I remember saying, I believe it was my brother that I took with me. I said, oh my God, this is such a great movie. This is a great movie, but it's not, there's no way it's going to be a mainstream hit. It's just too clever. It's too smart. It's too off, you know? So I was pleasantly surprised and stunned how that movie opened and how people just loved the film. You know, it's, uh, I didn't think people would get it. I really didn't. I think as a fan, I felt protective of it. Like, it felt like you saw something crazy happen in the movie theater, and you had to walk out and grab somebody and go, okay, there's some shit going on in here that you have to check out. (laughs) It's crazy. It it really was. It felt like you snuck something by. I know, I know. And I love the bad guys. Of course, I love them so much individually, just as people and human beings. And they... Each one was so clever and unique in their approach. And of course, what a know, terrific cast. Ray oh Wise my, and Paul what? McCrain. And I mean, just down the line, every Kurtwood Miguel Smith, Fer- Miguel Ferrer. So many yeah, good actors uh, in that. Everybody was really just the perfect casting. And I think Paul took a very long time casting this film. And uh, Peter and I were not the first choice, even though I knew when I read the script, it was my part. Mm. <laughs> but, um, they didn't come to me first, and and uh, I'm glad that it ended up the way that it did. But um, it was uh, I, I hold that film very close to me. In fact, they're screening it somewhere in North Hollywood, and Paul and I were supposed to do a Q and A together. And now he's has to uh, he's flying off to Europe on a new project, so I'm going to have to go and and do that by myself. But I I love that film, and it just um, it's very special. Uh, I could tell you from being a, a Twitter active film nerd that all you need to do is ask one question on Twitter about RoboCop and you will get a thousand <laughs> answers. And I think that's what one of the most refreshing things about it is, like Drew said, him and his friends mocked the poster. You you read the screenplay and said, oh, this title. Me, I saw the ad in the paper and I thought, oh, geez. Even as a kid, I thought this will be cheesy fun. Nobody thought that it would be smart and subversive and funny. Yeah. And that's why that's what buoys it over the years. There's lots of good action movies from the 80s that are kind of cool still, but pe- films like RoboCop and Starship Troopers, uh, they hold up because they're so unique. Yes, yes, uh, that's yeah. right. It's got to feel good to be a part of that, and 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 to have it be so out of your comfort zone. So you know, to have the success is one thing, but to have it to be work so far out of anything you've ever done before, and then have it be a smash. Uh, RoboCop must have been really gratifying. Well, it really was. And I was thrilled to be given that opportunity. And, and uh, you know, because it was very out of, you know, out of the, the type of work that I was doing. And, you know, you would think 
it was so funny then because it was a very, very different time in um, the business. And, you know, I really thought, oh, my God, this is going to open up so many different kinds of opportunities for me. But within the business as an actress, it was kind of like, hmm, I don't get it. What, what's she doing? It's like there's no nothing sexy there. They couldn't quite figure it out. And it, I think it almost confused people, if that makes any sense, even though it was a big hit. I So I should have been. It's a real shame. Hot after that, but I have no regrets because you know the films that I did, we're still talking about. I'm still talking about. It's the 30th anniversary of RoboCop this year. I'm sure you know that. And um, you know, Dress to Kill and Blowout and Carrie and 1941 is circled back around. And now, you know, I want to hold your hand. And there's so many movies that I wanted to do and didn't do. And it's, it's. uh, I feel very fortunate to have you know, body of work that, that are really iconic pieces and um, feel real lucky. I was going to say, even the films that don't, that didn't completely work or aren't iconic in the same way, I, I'm fascinated by the choices. Like, for example, I just rewatched, I had not seen it since it played theaters. I just rewatched Poltergeist 3 because there's a new Blu-ray coming out. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I didn't know Gary Sherman in 1988. Now I know who Gary Sherman was. And I would have been very interested at that point because of his earlier work to see what he would do with that franchise Um, on something like that. Even if it doesn't come together in the end, the things that got you interested or that made it compelling for you to work on, I would imagine there's still something about that that pulled you in in the first place. Well, you know, certainly the Poltergeist franchise was interesting, but really I wasn't going to say yes to that film until I met Gary, he's the one who changed my mind because he had a huge folder, binder, with everything laid out, how he was going to do this film, and he was so passionate about it. And it seemed like I thought, well, you know what? This, this, could, be, this could be an interesting thing to do. So, um, because well, the practical Gary, effects work is yes. fascinating. It's really, when you look at it now, it's almost all practical and it's, it's like opt it's tricks that he did in camera. And that is, it's so clever just to watch that. Even if you don't like the rest of the movie, it's still amazingly staged. It it is. And it was really challenging. Uh, Everybody had a double, as you know, and we had to uh, be able to be so in sync with that other actor so that the timing, the movements, all of that stuff had to be synchronized exactly to perfection, to work. And um, it was a difficult, difficult shoot physically, but I think it paid off because the effects do work. Now, did he have to make it that hard on himself? Probably not. But, you know, hey, the guy likes a challenge. What can I tell you? Uh, Wondering, they don't technically fall under uh, 1980s films because of when they came out, but Give us your thoughts on the RoboCop sequels real quick. <laughs> the uh, second one was originally supposed to be directed by Tim Hunter. Rivers mm. Edge, that director. Oh, yeah. Which I thought, well, that couldn't be a more perfect choice. Perfect. Yeah. And he's got the right tweak, you know, if you know what I mean. And I met him and loved him. And he d- developed a script, which was wonderful, which is the script I said yes to. And... Um, and then who knows something with the studio and they had a falling out, whatever happened there and then enter urban Kirshner. And, uh, that was unfortunate for me. Uh, it was a very, um, it wasn't a good experience. Uh, I think that the 
changes that went in the script uh, really took away the humor, the heart and soul of the picture. People still like it a lot, so I don't want to completely turn people off because a lot of people love that movie. Um, I saw it once. That's what I'll tell you about that movie for me. It just seems hard to chase a film that is as particular and as mercurial as RoboCop. Like, that is such an odd mix of elements anyway that sequels would seem super tricky to even attempt. Definitely. You know, definitely. I think that there was more in the script that I read in terms of the development of the characters and their relationship and all of that. But, yeah, I mean, unless... uh, Yeah, yes, because, you know what, in a way... Once you see it, once you experience it, it's where do you go from there? Uh, then it's the what the the adventures of RoboCop, and that's not what the first one was. It wasn't about the adventures. Everyone thought, of course, that I was going to come back as a cyborg. Mm-hmm. That's what everyone expected because. Oh, your last line in the first one's great. Yeah, yeah they fixed you. They'll fix everything. You know. Um, but that's not what happened. So, you know, I don't love the movie. I did it. it you know, I found moments to uh, uh, enjoy. And the third one, I really wasn't going to do. But I had such a fan base and there was such a love of, of the Anne Lewis character that I felt I felt like I had to finish it. I just had to finish the job, so to speak. And um, so when I met with Fred Decker, he was quite young then, and uh, you know, he was very nice. And I had had a dream the night before, and I woke up and thought, oh, they're going to kill her. <laughs> I kind of knew it. I just intuitively knew they were going to uh, get rid of the character. But I I thought, personally thought it was a big mistake to try and make it a PG-13 yeah. or whatever they did. I mean, that's not RoboCop. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I... I, I I don't even know if I've seen it from beginning to end, to tell you the truth. See, that must be a tough that must be a tough thing to reconcile as an actor. Uh, because on one hand, you're like, oh, part three, you're not really giving me much to do. I've played this character twice. And right. you know, um, I, 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 but on the other hand, I don't want somebody else to play this character. And that's, that's you it. know, yeah, you know, and if they're gonna make it, I'd rather them make it with me than not with me. Well, that, yes, there was that. And I'd rather they not kill her off stage. If they're going to kill her, kill her. At least let me finish it. You know, let mm-hmm. me complete this. And so there was that. And I had had a lot of conflict over it. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, but, and in the end, I ended up doing it. I'm not sorry that I did, but I just, I think that it's, um, I mean, look, they've tried to make this movie as a television, uh, RoboCop television series. They tried to remake this movie, you know, RoboCop a few years ago. I think it's actually almost five years ago now because I remember we were celebrating the 25th anniversary and uh, we were doing a screening at UCLA and somehow they had recorded a message from uh, this director saying, oh, I'm going to make the movie and I, you know, I hope it goes well. And when we did the, when we did a Q&A for um, a fundraiser that I did, Paul was so funny and they said, the interviewer said to him, oh, Paul, um, isn't it interesting now they're remaking their RoboCops coming out and Total Recall? What do you think about that? And he said, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Paul, but he said, that's very depressing. I should be dead. And uh, <laughs> to know him is to love him. And I just thought that was so funny, you know. But, uh, 
yeah, you know, they just, it just, they should just leave it alone. Fix the bad movies. It didn't work the first time. Is it not, is it not a huge compliment when you see that like two sequels, meh, not so great, you know, decent, watchable, not so, not as, not nearly up to snow. Then you got a TV series, then you got a remake. And I, personally, if I would take that, if I'm you, I'd take that as a compliment every time it happened. <laughs> well, it is, and that's very positive, and thank you for saying that to me. But I, it, of course it is. Of course it is. At the same time, I also very feel very protective of yeah. writers, of the director, and I want to say, what makes you think that you can do this? It was perfect. Don't even try, you know. That's yeah. what I'm it. The very last thing I want to ask you about, um, I know for a lot of people who grew up in the 80s, Terror in the Isles was an introduction to a lot of horror films that they may not have seen yet. And it's not a film that's in heavy circulation now. I don't know if it's a rights issue or if it's just impossible to figure out how to uh, put it out at this point. But it was one of those things that I think any horror fan growing up in that era saw. And it really was a pretty great primer uh, for the genre in general. That's Um, also uh, Terror in the Isles. If I could be if I could interject, Terror in the Isles is where I fell in love with you. Miss Allen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, but it's true. I must have watched that film on VHS probably 30 times with my friends. We love that compilation. Oh, well, it is a great compilation. And, you know, one of the uh, attractions for me was Donald Pleasance. And I thought, oh, my God, I love Donald Pleasance. I can't wait to meet him. And we never worked. We never met, not for one second. So really <laughs> sad for me. But I'll tell you. I'll tell you my secret about that film is that when I watched it, it was really hard to get through it because it is so terrifying watching those clips one yeah. after the next. It's it's almost too much to take in one sitting, yeah. at least for me. And I those... felt pretty, you know, seasoned about uh, uh, and and hardened a little bit with uh, horror films and thrillers. But boy, that was that was rough. Those gentlemen who made that film, uh, Leo and Salt, they went on to edit and direct a lot of things for the Academy. They're yeah. really fantastic editors, and that's part of the reason why Terror in the Isles is so good because it is, it's is—it's not just a compilation of moments. It's a compilation of gradually more intense and suspenseful moments. If our listeners want to get a hold of Terror in the Isles, I know that it was released on a Halloween 2 Blu-ray from Universal yeah. several years ago, uh, and, and – uh, but I think, like Drew said, I'm pretty sure it was a major rights issue to to get that thing released. Um, yeah, you mentioned so. that you had trouble yeah. getting through through watching some of those scenes again. Uh, it's almost impossible to discuss dress to kill or blow out without talking about how Brian approaches violence. And it's such an integral part of the storytelling. But it's also very upsetting for audiences in some cases. And those films still, I think, are very bracing when you see them. When you're approaching that kind of material, what is your process as an actor to get ready to shoot something that is going to be so so extreme or uh, intense. Hmm. Boy, yeah, that's. Um, I don't prepare too much in terms of the intensity of it because I like to have. I like to be surprised. I like to let the moment kind of take me over as we're shooting it. Although Brian does like to rehearse the actors a lot, so I think that rehearse and then shoot. He shoots a lot. He rehearses a lot. He does a lot of takes. Um, the um, the scene on the subway for me, for some reason, I don't know why, that was the most terrifying scene for me. Just yeah. the whole thing, all leading up to it, the guys chasing, feeling alone, that feeling of being so alone and running, running, running from whatever. So I think that um, you have to completely 
let go of anything that protects you and go to complete vulnerability. And um, that that's the part that you have to give yourself permission to do, be completely vulnerable. You know, Brian likes a certain amount of realism. So if the guys are pushing you around or, or a scene where John Lithgow's dragging me up the staircase, he likes it to be real. He likes you to really look like you're, you know, being thrown around like a rag doll. So pretty much you have to submit to it. You submit to it and then fight against it. And that's that's what I do. I don't have anything personally to draw on. I've never been attacked, uh, thank God, and hopefully never will. Uh, I've never, I didn't grow up in that kind of environment. So it's basically called your imagination. That's what I have to go to is my imagination. What would that happen? As a woman growing up in New York, you know, having a father as a cop, you look around every corner. You just, you look at everybody and watch observe everything that's happening around you because you know that anytime anything can happen. So I suppose that's what I used. Uh, Miss Allen, we want to thank you so much for taking your time out. Uh, our our Thanks, podcast is dedicated. Yeah. is dedicated to the 1980s. It's an era that we love. And I, I think going forward, uh, cause you're our first interview, I think we're going to end every interview with, with a similar question. And it would be something like um, when you think of the films of the 1980s, uh, you know, either films or filmmakers or memories, what stands out to you the most? What, what, what are your favorite, what's your favorite memory of the, uh, or your favorite experience from the decade? The eighties the was just a very intense period. Uh, things became more technically proficient. I think visuals, I think of very strong visuals. I think of, um, probably a lot of action in the eighties. Mm-hmm. That's what I think about. Uh, 70s was not like that. And um, just, um, yeah, I think very strong visuals and very a lot of excitement for the most part. A lot of spectacle. Spectacle, exactly. Yeah. That's perfect. Spectacle. Beautiful. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to finally have oh, the conversation. Thank you for thinking of me. And by the way, if you need to go back or go over anything, or I just, I know I gave a lot of lengthy answers. If you want to just come back and get other things from me, just let me know. Great. Oh, thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much. You've been a real joy. Thank you. Good luck with it. And I'll be looking forward to hearing all of your podcasts. Great. And I'll see you on Twitter, Scott. Yep. Take care. (laughs) Take care, you guys. Bye-bye.